Okay, welcome everybody. It's a great pleasure to see you all here on the 1st of May. Um, I'm James Putzel. I'm Professor of Development Studies at the International Development Department here at the school. And it gives me a lot of pleasure to welcome Hanjin Chung uh, back to the LSE. Uh, anybody who's studying development anyway at the LSE is really familiar with Hanjin's work. In fact, you can't really graduate in development <laughs> studies here without having read Hanjin. Thanks to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Hanjin is an economist in the best tradition of Cambridge economics though the University of Cambridge doesn't always recognize that tradition. I mean, he's, he's there after predecessors like Pigou, Keynes, Schraffer, Joan Robinson, Richard Kahn, Hans Singer, very important to our study of development. Hajun, throughout his career, and especially in the last two decades, has kind of boldly stood up to dominant orthodoxies. Uh, in modern economics. And he's pursued the study of economic change with a really keen eye to history, politics, sociology, and philosophy, which is really at the heart of what classical political economy was, was really about. He's been a courageous defender in, ec- in the economics discipline of pluralism in both theory and methodology. I think this is one of the most important contributions and the contribution of this book that we're launching tonight. Hajun is author of a really impressive list of books, articles, book chapters, uh, policy papers, and I'm not going to try to mention them all tonight, but I do want to flag some of the earlier ones which which have a a lasting importance. His, His book, The Political Economy of Industrial Policy, extremely important for thinking about development. The East Asian Development Experience and Globalization, Economic Development, and the Role of the State. But in recent years, Hajun has turned to a wider audience. Uh, The first one I remember having quite a big impact among our students was Reclaiming Development, Mm -hmm. which you wrote with Irene, I don't know if it was the first one, but with Irene Grabble. Then came Bad Samaritans, the Guilty Secrets of Rich Nations. You have a way of finding great titles. <laughs> and then, of course, as everybody knows, the bestseller. I mean, most of us in academe never get on a bestsellers list. That's 23 things they don't tell you about capitalism. Um, I like to claim a tiny bit of credit in pushing Hajun on the trajectory he's currently following, because back in the late 1990s, I was locked into debates with senior officials of the newly, then newly established Department for International Development. Do we have any of you here tonight? <laughs> Different people? Uh, anyway, I was debating with them about the problems of imposing the so-called good governance agenda on developing country governments in exchange for getting aid. This has to do with introducing you know, the, the, the institutions and rules of financial probity, of competitive democratic politics, etc., on poor countries. And so I suggested to them that they commission some research that would look at the good governance agenda in the UK history. And I suggested they turn to Hajun. 
So Ha Jun did that piece of work, and um, somewhat later, it was published um, in what has become an extremely important volume, I think, for anybody working mm-hmm. on, on development. And he published it under a title uh, that who's uh, borrowing the words from one of the most important interpreters of late development, Friedrich List, the German, German political economist. And that book was Kicking Away the Ladder, Development Strategy in Historical Perspective. That same year, and that was 2002, Hajun came out with an article in the Cambridge Journal of Economics titled Breaking the Mold, where he laid out his own vision and his own version of an institutionalist political economy. So in my mind, that remains one of the most trenchant dissections and critical assessments of um, neoliberalism, the ideology of neoliberalism or the set of doctrines that are associated with neoliberalism. And, and I think um, that book, that article, which demolished the effort of um, those propagating that doctrine to appropriate neoclassical economics um, and also dissected neoliberalism to look at what schools of economics were involved with it, that article, I think, though Hajun may not agree with me, is the expert foundation to this wonderful book <laughs> that is launched today, which is the Economics, Economics the User's Guide. Now, tonight we're launching this book, um, and we need to note something very special, I think, about this, this book. This is the first in the... Re- in the relaunching of Penguin's Pelican series of books. Um, And this series was first launched in 1937. The very first author was George Bernard Shaw, who who, um, published The Intelligent Women's Guide to Socialism and Capitalism. Um, The idea of the Pelican series was to commission experts to explain in ways that are accessible to the public extremely important and complex issues of the day. And so it's it's in a great tradition that Ha-Jun is um, publishing in that series. And in fact, as I looked at it today, because I didn't have access to it before, um, I decided that we have a lot of students who come to do development studies who have no economics background. So I think we're going to make them, it required. My first thought was to make it required for all those students to read this book before they arrive. But as I thought about it more, I thought even more important are those students who have a first degree in economics should read this book <laughs> before they arrive to do development studies. Yeah. The book um, is an attempt, in Hajun's words, to lay out different approaches to understanding economics, and let his readers make their own judgments. So he says right in the beginning, he's not telling the reader how to, he's telling the reader or showing the reader how to think, but not what to think. There's a wonderful kind of uh, trawl through economics outlining nine different schools or traditions. Um, And he talks, he presents them also in mixed forms, as mixed cocktails, one of his one of the injunctions he makes is how deadly it is 
to consume only one of them. <laughs> yeah? So I think we couldn't have a more appropriate way here at the LSC to actually celebrate International Workers' Day. It's May 1. Many of you probably don't even know mm -hmm. that May 1 is International Workers' Day. But it's in the tradition of making complex ideas uh, accessible to the wider public so that they can use them and use their own judgment to develop and, and, and uh, their own participation in our society, in our po politics, uh, that, this, that, that this series has been launched and we couldn't have a better contributor than Dr. Hajun Chung. So I welcome you. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you, James, uh, for that very kind introduction. Yes, I mean, as I acknowledge uh, in the acknowledgement uh, section of my kicking of the ladder, without James uh, kind of arranging me to write that paper on governance reform, which uh, forms the second part of uh, kicking of the ladder, that book would not have come out, and my life would have been very different. So. <laughs> Uh, thank you, James. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, do I have my PowerPoint? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. So I'm, as uh, James introduced, uh, going to talk about this book, uh, which is uh, the very first volume in the Revive series uh, of uh, Pelican paperbacks. You know, the Pelican was uh, the quite an institution. You know, the, it covered everything from the universe to ants, from economics to bird watching. Yeah, I'm not lying. You know, that you can go and check, from philosophy to design. And I uh, especially have uh, a special thing about Pelican because you know I grew up in South Korea in the early 19. Uh, uh, went to university in South Korea in the early 1980s when Korea was uh, still a very poor country, and Pelican paperbacks were the only imported books that you could possibly buy, because other books were just so expensive. Yeah? I mean, of course, that, 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 that uh, we, we pirate copied even Pelicans. Uh, <laughs> no, because, uh, you know, I mean, I that, uh, was lucky enough to come from a well-off family and could buy a few copies of Pelican, but all the others uh, didn't have money, you know. So how do you read these things, you know, uh, pirate copy? You know? <laughs> yeah, so the, even today I tell my readers, look, uh, if your country's uh, per capita income is below $10,000, please go ahead and pirate copy my book. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Pelican was uh, one of the few books that, uh, that we could actually yeah, realistically buy, and I, I did uh, own a few copies, including one Galbraith volume. So I'm, I'm really honored uh, to be the first uh, author in this uh, new series. Now, in this uh, book, uh, as I say, I'm going to offer... Uh, yeah. <clears throat> a kind of accessible introduction to economics, at least... Yeah, easier than George Bonner's show. It's quite a dense book, you know. I tried to read it, I, I couldn't uh, finish. 
Yeah, so the, in this book, I the, did my best the, to write it the, in a very accessible way and yeah, try to offer something completely different, yeah? as uh, Monty Python used to say. Well, in this book, I try my best to dispel this widespread notion that economics is very difficult. Yeah? Yeah, actually, when you think about this, it, it's uh, quite a strange thing because uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure all of you have very strong views on all sorts of things. Yeah? Gay marriage, Iraq, yeah? nuclear power stations, global warming, without actually having any qualification to make judgments on this. <laughs> No, seriously, I mean, you know, I have my views on Iraq, but what do I know about international politics? You know, I don't have a degree in politics, yeah? <laughs> so we are quite willing to make a strong judgment on just about everything except for economics, yeah? When it comes to economics, people say, oh, it's a technical issue, I don't know, maybe those you know, clever guys in the Treasury and the Bank of England will all know the, what the answer is, but not me. But Why? And I say that this is only because uh, the economists have been fantastically successful in convincing other people that the subject is so difficult that they wouldn't understand it, <laughs> even if they try to explain it to them. Yeah? But actually, in my previous book, uh, 23 Things uh, They Don't Tell You About Capitalism, I stuck my neck out and said, actually, 95% of economics is common sense. Well, of course, made to look difficult yeah? with the use of uh, mathematics and jargons. Yeah? And even the remaining 5% can be understood in its essence, if not in all technical details, if uh, somebody bothers to explain it in an accessible way, which is what I try to do in this book. Now, being accessible doesn't mean that I'm trying to give you some baby version of economics. Yeah? I mean, idiot's guys to economics, yeah? 10 points to remember. Yeah? No. Uh, this is not what I do. I take my readers very seriously, so I discuss all kinds of uh, very difficult issues, the definition of economics, the role of ethical values and politics in economics, how there are many different ways of uh, conceptualizing the economy, and why and how they matter. You know, for example, today we are so used to the neoclassical school, which conceptualizes the economy as a collection of uh, individuals. Eh? But uh, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, these people who neoclassical economists think uh, are their intellectual grandfathers, the classical economists, they actually didn't theorize the economy as a collection of individuals. They theorized the economy as a collection of classes, yeah? capitalists, landlords, workers. And they had a whole different theory of how the economy develops. Their focus was on production, rather than market exchange, although they did extol the virtues of market, you know, the, what was the very first thing that Adam Smith wrote about? He didn't write about market, he wrote about a factory, yeah? a pin factory. Yeah? This is where he talks about the importance of what he calls the division of labor. He says if uh, one person tries to make a pin, maybe he can make one pin a day, maybe 20 pins a day because uh, he has to do everything. So uh, draw the wire, cut the wire, sharpen the wire, and so on and so on. And Adam Smith says, however, if you divide this into, say, 10 different steps and make 10 people specialize in each step, productivity increases enormously. He reports that 
Typically, this will allow each worker to produce 4,800 pins a day. So that, that 10 of them collectively that, that, that produces 48,000. So they are very much interested in production rather than market exchange. Anyway, so that, that there are many different ways of uh, conceptualizing the economy, and I, I that, that try to tell my readers there are all these different ways. So this is uh, the tab- table of contents, and as you can see from here, I talk about a lot of things that are not talked about in economics books uh, these days. So I have uh, a huge chapter on economic history, big chapter on different schools of economics. I also talk about uh, what is economics, uh, which I'll uh, talk about in a minute. I also deal with certain issues that are neglected in economics these days, production, work. I'll talk about them later too. I also introduce the reader to lots of what I call real-life numbers. You know, we all have this notion that economics is a number subject. But honestly, grab a recent economic graduate, ask him or her, some basic numbers, what is the national output of your economy, what is the size of the world economy, what proportion of it that is produced by China, they'll have no idea, because they are never taught these things. Of course, in this internet age, it's not important to remember these numbers, because you can always look them up like that. But you actually have to know some of these numbers, to have some feel about these numbers, even just to know what to look for, where. So I I keep uh, a lot of, uh, I mean, in the second part of the book, uh, on the the sort of more topic-oriented chapters, I actually, at the end of each section, have a subsection called real-life numbers, giving all these numbers. Now, despite uh, emphasizing the, the importance of numbers, I am at pains to tell my readers that numbers need to be taken with a pinch of salt, sometimes with a bag of salt. The German writer and scientist uh, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe uh, said something very significant uh, in this uh, respect. He said, everything factual is already a theory. Because numbers in economics are not like numbers in physics or chemistry. Yeah? I mean, these are artificially constructed numbers. Yeah? So unemployment, yeah? how do you define unemployment? Yeah? I mean, the, the, can you just count the number of people who are not working and divide it by the general population and say that's the rate of unemployment? No, because some people do not even want to work. Yeah? Full-time students. Yeah? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not, not uh, saying it in a... T- kind of a negative way. <laughs> you know, homemakers, yeah? Or people who are retired, yeah? Who don't want to work. So there are people who don't want to work, but then exactly how do you define people who don't want to work? Because uh, the way usually you define in National Unemployment Survey, according to the methodology 
international agreed that 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 through the ILO, the International Labour Organization, you actually should have applied for a job in the last four weeks to be counted as someone who is willing to work. Now, in an economic environment like today's, there are a lot of what is uh, known as uh, discouraged workers. They have applied for 200 jobs, all failures. They got fed up. They they, they have been exhausted. So they haven't applied for jobs uh, for the last couple of months, despite the fact that they really want to and need to work. But when there's an unemployment survey, they'll be recorded as outside the labor force. But why is it four weeks? Why not two weeks? Why not eight weeks? Yeah? So these are all kind of some kind of judgment. Yeah? So you know, I mean, I can go on with uh, these kind of examples, but you, know, you have to uh, accept that the uh, economic numbers are actually yeah, that uh, constructed with a lot of theoretical assumptions behind them, and you need to understand those assumptions in order to truly understand what uh, these uh, figures mean. Yeah? Okay, so the, now the two more details. Uh, well, first of all, let's uh, talk about the, uh, the definition of economics. What is economics? Huh? Now, if we ask people who have never studied economics, what is economics? They'll say, of course, it's the study of the economy. Yeah, I mean, the chemistry is the study of chemicals. Sociology is the study of society. So economics must be the study of the economy. Unfortunately, they'll be wrong. Well, at least according to some of the most popular economic books of our time, because according to these books, economics is about the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. (laughs) As in the famous uh, uh, comedy science fiction, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, written by late uh, Douglas Adams, Now, this was uh, made into a movie, actually. Uh, In 2005, uh, the the leading actor there was uh, Martin Freeman, who, of course, is uh, today known better for The Hobbit (laughs) and Sherlock. Yeah, the movie is not uh, as good as uh, the book, but uh, it's uh, still good uh, because the book is so good. Anyway, <clears throat> so in that book, there's uh, this thing called, I mean, I'm not going to uh, tell you more about it, but there's this thing called the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And indeed, you know, the, the looking at the, the most uh, popular economics books of today, you could uh, actually say that yeah, the economics is almost about life, the universe, and everything, yeah? You see that uh, Tim Harford, Stephen Levitt, yeah. Robert Frank, I mean, that these are some of the most uh, uh, popular authors of uh, that, uh, sort of general economics books. And all of their books have something about life, yeah. everything, you know, the universe. Well, not exactly the universe, but at least the world, you know. Now, you may think I'm being unfair because, you know, I mean, these are books that, uh, oh, sorry, I uh, skipped one bit, I'm sorry. Yeah. Now, that according to these books, that, uh, so economists can basically explain everything. Huh? 
Now, when you think about it, that this is some claim coming from a subject which has totally failed in the area which other people will think is main job, namely explaining the economy. Eh? <laughs> no, I mean, that this is a serious case of megalomania. Eh? <laughs> you cannot even explain your own area and then you claim that, yes, I, actually I can uh, explain everything. Eh? <laughs> How come, you know? Well, I, uh, of course, uh, being unfair because, uh, you know, these are all mass market books, you know, the mass market has, mass market, uh, book market has a, a, a tough competition, uh, you know, you have to draw attention, you know, I, I know, I mean, I operate in that market, you know, title is uh, 50% of the book, so, <laughs> you know, you have to come up with the eye-catching title, but, you know, my point is that uh, the, even if uh, they are hyped up, these Titles could have been hyped up in a different way. You know, you could have uh, had titles like "How My Book uh, Explains Everything About the Economy." Yeah, you could have done that. But they say that "How My Book Can Explain Everything About Everything," yeah? <laughs> not just the economy. Yeah? This is a very important uh, the, the point because this is uh, not by accident. Yeah? This is fundamentally based on what happened in you know, this building, maybe the, the next building, in this uh, the, the institution uh, 70 years ago when the Ra- Lionel Robbins, the former professor at LSE, wrote this famous book, uh, the, the, the small book uh, called An Essay on the Nature and Significance of Economic Science in 1932, where he defined economics as the science which studies human behavior as a relationship between ends and scarce means, which have alternative uses, namely what is known as rational choice theory. Excuse me. So in this uh, definition, economics is defined not by its uh, object of uh, investigation, namely the economy, but it's by its uh, analytical methodology, namely rational choice theory. So actually, in this view, it doesn't really matter what you are studying. As far as you use this particular methodology, then you can be called economics. This is why free economics has hardly anything that people normally associate with economics. Eh? You know, the, the book is uh, full of things like uh, sumo wrestlers and uh, <laughs> you know, Chicago drug dealers and contestants in the, the, the quiz show Weakest Link and so on, yeah? But then this is supposed to be economics because it uses this particular methodology to analyze human behavior. And when you take that view, yes, I mean, uh, you think nothing of claiming that uh, you can actually explain everything. Because potentially your methodology can be applied to every every aspect of uh, human human behavior. Now, this is, uh, once again, I mean, some claim, because, you know, even physicists, neoclassical economists' role model, admit that they have failed to develop a theory of everything. No, actually, in physics, uh, there is uh, this notion of theory of everything, but uh, no one has uh, come up with it. (laughs) And this uh, unique uh, uh, definition 
so, so this definition is uh, really unique uh, when you think about it, yeah? because all other subjects define its identity in terms of uh, the object of its uh, inquiry. Yeah? yeah, so you go to a biology department, there are people doing all sorts of uh, different things uh, in order to understand living organisms. Yeah? So some people will do, of course, uh, DNA analysis, some others might do anatomy, some people will do you know, nasty experiments with rats. You know, some of them might uh, model, uh, mathematically model animal behavior, and some of them might uh, go and sit in the jungles of Rwanda watching gorillas, but they are all called biologists because you know, they all study living organisms in one way or another. But in economics, with this definition, no, actually that, that, that kind of uh, pluralist Pluralist uh, attitude is uh, impossible because unless you do it in a particular way, you are not an economist. Yeah? You know, my contention is that economics should be defined not by its methodology but by its object of investigation, like all other subjects. That is the economy, or how we produce goods and services how we distribute the incomes generated in the process, and how we exchange and consume those goods and services that have been produced. Now, one important consequence of this neoclassical definition of economics is to make neoclassical economists believe that there's only one right way of doing economics, rational choice theory. But as James already mentioned, in the book, I emphasize that there are at least nine different major schools of economics, with this, each with uh, its own unique strengths and weaknesses. You could uh, cite quite a few more if you look at uh, more minor schools or split uh, the, the, the major schools into different uh, sub-schools. And interestingly, uh, there are three schools of uh, Economics, uh, which uh, you can describe as uh, free market economics. Of course, I mean, neoclassical economics has uh, two versions. One is a uh, free market version, as uh, it is uh, practiced today. Another is actually not a free market version, welfare economics, market failure and all that. So the neoclassical economics is actually not the same as the free market economics, but there is a version of free market uh, economics uh, based on neoclassical economics, but that's not the only type of free market economics. Yeah? It's the classical school, which uh, that, uh, theorizes the economy on the basis of uh, classes rather than individuals. There's uh, the Austrian school, which uh, have, uh, once again, a very different view of uh, human rationality and uh, uncertainty and so on. You know, the, the Austrian view is that uh, the world is so uncertain and no one knows anything the government shouldn't interfere. The neoclassical view is that the government should, uh, the free market version of the neoclassical view is that the government shouldn't interfere because everyone knows what is going on. So that, these are very different. Yeah? Well, anyway, I mean, that, uh, please read the book uh, for the explanation. I cannot. Uh, <laughs> but in introducing all these different theories, my view is that we actually need all of them you know, because uh, they all have something to contribute. You know? 
And in making that contention, I give you what I call the Singapore problem, or what I call life is stranger than fiction. You know, if you read about Singapore in, say, The Economist magazine or The Wall Street Journal, we'll only hear about this uh, the free trade policy and its uh, welcoming attitude towards uh, foreign investors, which it has, but you will never be told that basically 90% of land is owned by the government, 85% of housing is provided by government-owned housing corporation, and a staggering 22% of national output is produced by state-owned enterprises, including the famous Singapore Airlines. When international average in that respect is about 9%. So I often tell my students, give me one economic theory. It doesn't matter what it is, neoclassical, classical, Marxist, Keynesian, Schumpeterian. One economic theory that can explain Singapore, and there isn't one. In order to understand something like Singapore, you need all these different theories. So in the book, I argue that uh, we have to let a hundred flowers bloom. You know, there isn't just one right way of doing economics, but many different ways, each with its uh, own strengths and weaknesses, and we need to have all of them. I actually go one step further and argue that we have to have them cross-fertilized. Yeah, because uh, you know, even among the supposed uh, the enemies in this uh, economic debate, there are a lot of uh, common grounds. Yeah. You know, for example, the Marxists and Austrians, I mean, they, they uh, want to kill each other. But actually, the, when it comes to the view of uh, competition and innovation and so on, the, they are actually much closer to each other than to the neoclassical school. You know, Hayek in the 1940s uh, wrote a series of articles uh, criticizing the neoclassical view of competition. Yeah. He says, a uh, neoclassical the view of perfect competition is a state of an uh, economy in which uh, there is uh, nothing uh, that we recognize as uh, the competition happens. Yeah? You know, it's uh, basically a state of paralysis. Yeah? No one has any market power, no one can do anything, that's perfect competition. But Hayek says, like Schumpeter, like Marx, capitalism developed because someone innovates, someone that, that, that comes up with a completely new idea, creating monopoly, destroying this uh, that, uh, state of perfect competition. Yeah? Anyway, that's uh, just one example. So, you know, that, uh, there are a lot of uh, the, the grounds to develop this uh, cross-fertilization. And my advice in this regard is that you should not, uh, sorry, you should try not to be a man or a woman with a hammer. <laughs> this happens uh, if you study only one type of economic theory and acquire one tool known as the hammer. Yeah? And then you start to see everything as a name. Hmm? Yeah, da, 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 and then you begin to bang everything. Hmm? <laughs> yeah, if you're lucky and if it happens to be a nail, great. But, you know, what if uh, it's an egg, you know? <laughs> so I suggest that we should all get a Swiss army knife hmm? with a range of tools. And of course, that, uh, you need to study history, politics, and institutions to get the sense uh, to know what to choose in what context, but this is what you need. Yeah? Unfortunately, today's uh, the economics education is too much focused on one theory, making people basically yeah, a man or a woman with a hammer. 
Okay. Um, gosh, uh, how much time do I have? Okay, 10, 10, 10 minutes, 10, yeah? 15 minutes. Okay. Uh, no, no, I'll uh, have to, yeah. Okay, so I said that I will uh, talk about work and production, but I don't think I have time for both of them. Uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll talk about work only. Uh, basically, what I'm trying to say here is that, yeah, it, uh, not just it is not just in terms of introducing different types of economic theory and arguing for their cross-fertilization that uh, my book is different from other economics books. It also deals with a number of topics that are neglected in other economics books, and uh, the two of them, the most important one, the, the ones are production and work. Now, work uh, that, uh, is an interesting issue because, you know, outside the... the the weekends and holidays, I mean, most people of working age spend at least half of their waking hours in work and a lot more if you include the commuting hours. I mean, especially if you're some unlucky black guy that's stuck in one of the townships in the South Africa, you could be spending up to six hours commuting because uh, there's no public transport. You have to use this at uh, highly overpriced minibuses that are strangely called taxis in that country that are run by gangsters. Yeah? And they have to travel in very uh, kind of under-paved uh, and you know, ridiculous roads. So sometimes it takes uh, three hours to get into the city to go to your work. Yeah? So the work actually counts for a huge part of our life, but how many economics books, uh, except in yeah, labor economics, uh, have you read uh, that talks about work? Very few. Huh? There's a reason, because uh, the, the dominant uh, economic theory, neoclassical theory, mainly conceptualizes uh, people as consumers and not workers. Yeah? And in that theory, work is this, this utility that you have to put up with so that you can earn money, which you can use uh, to buy goods and services whose consumption gives you the utility. So your aim of life is actually consumption. Work is only a means. However, what happens in our workplace fundamentally affects us. Not just our immediate physical and psychological well-being, but also our identity, our sense of dignity, and our self Fulfillment. And it is because we have ignored these uh, important dimensions that we have created this uh, society where we are, yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of monetary income, richer, but a lot less happy. Because work is more stressful. I mean, especially if you're a, you know, a warehouse worker working for Amazon, I mean, uh, there's GPS machine that, 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 that monitoring you, you know. I mean, uh, there's a lot more pressure to perform in terms of performance-related pay. I mean, I'm not against uh, performance-related pay per se, but very often uh, these performances have to be measured in a very simplistic way. And when it comes to things like uh, NHS and these complex areas, I mean, it's okay if uh, you are making T-shirts, but uh, in those areas, uh, that this performance-related pay can be quite destructive and uh, very stressful for workers. You have uh, now longer and more crowded commutes. You have uh, less job security, which puts a lot of stress on you. Yeah, so you are a lot unha- uh, 
a lot unhappier, but then economists tell you, well, you should feel happy because your incomes are 20% higher than 15 years ago. Yeah? But you are not. Yeah? Why? You, know, you need to think about these things. Yeah? And finally, throughout the book, I emphasize that economics is a political argument. Of course, uh, most uh, neoclassical economists claim that, oh, what we do is value-free science. Get politics out of economics. This is why they renamed the subject at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, which used to be called political economy. Politics was an integral part of uh, economics. Now it's uh, supposed to be something uh, that shouldn't be there. You know, the Pareto criterion that uh, neo, uh, neoclassical economists use to judge uh, whether something is a social improvement is one example of how an ostensibly apolitical position in economics is actually based on a fundamentally political position. You know, the Pareto principle says that you can call something a social change or improvement only when it makes some people better without making anyone worse off. Yeah? It's a, a, a quite yeah, a respectable position, you know, because that, that unless you have uh, something like that, it's uh, very difficult to defend individual against uh, the tyranny of the majority. Yeah? So to explain this, I, I, I talk about uh, what I call the one-finger problem, which I actually don't talk about in the book, but uh, uh, this is uh, special for people who bother to come to listen to me. <laughs> you know, uh, if uh, someone turns up at my door tomorrow morning and says, oh, Dr. Chang, we found this wonderful technology that will solve uh, the problem of global warming overnight, but we need one critical ingredient, and we want you to donate it. So I said, uh, what is it? Yeah? Oh, we need one live human finger for this uh, machine to start working. Yeah? yeah, I'll gladly chop up one of my fingers yeah, to save the world. Yeah? But what if it's uh, one arm? Mm, I think I'll do it. But what if it's my life, my family's life, yeah? the life of all 50 million Koreans, or 6 million Jews, or whatever? Yeah? Where do you stop? Yeah? So this uh, Pareto principle was uh, that, 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 uh, advanced by people who are really concerned with this issue. Yeah? So it's a very respectable position. However, this creates an inherent bias towards the status quo because it literally gives veto power to every single individual. So if there's one you know, rich guy who has uh, the, the taken everything through you know, corrupt means and says, no, I don't want any change. You, know, you cannot take even one cent from me because I don't like it. And then you cannot make any social reform. You know? So the Pareto, the, the, this notion of Pareto improvement is a respectable position, but it is a, still a political position. It's not apolitical, as that a lot of economists will try to tell you. No. And even when they don't explicitly use the Pareto criterion, many neoclassical economists take an implicit political position as they usually accept the given distribution of income and wealth as given. You know, the best example is Paul Krugman, you know, as uh, progressive as it comes uh, for a neoclassical economist. Indeed, in the late 1990s, he was involved in this debate with uh, some American NGOs who were campaigning against low wages uh, in subsidies uh, of uh, American multinational companies in poor countries. 
And Krugman waded in and said, no, no, you people are quite misguided. You are talking as if these poor workers in Bangladesh have a choice between a low-wage job and a high-wage job. No, actually, they, their choice is low, between a low-wage job and no job. So actually, they are better off with low-wage jobs. What are you talking about? Well, he's absolutely correct if you take everything as given. But what if uh, Bangladesh has a land reform which will keep uh, more workers in the countryside and put uh, less pressure on urban wages? What if it uh, can pass uh, some strict uh, labor regulation that uh, can protect workers' rights and uh, raise wages, including minimum wage law and so on? What if uh, Bangladesh can have a better industrial policy to create more high-wage jobs? Well, you might say, oh, those are all unrealistic, but those are exactly what countries like South Korea and Taiwan did in the you know, period of economic miracle. Hmm? That's how they created the, 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 uh, the higher-wage economy. Hmm? Now, of course, I mean, the, you can debate whether this or that particular policy in Bangladesh is realistic or not, but it's a matter of debate. It's not a given, hmm? But even someone like Paul Krugman starts from the assumption that, yes, uh, there'll be no fundamental social change in Bangladesh. And given all this, yes, uh, that, that these uh, the jobs offered by GAP and so on in Bangladesh are totally acceptable. Yeah? That's still a political position. Yeah? But it goes even deeper because, uh, as I say in the first chapter of this book, even defining what is in the market is a political exercise. Yeah? And to make this point, in the chapter I talk about the example of child labor, you know, when the, the social reformers that, that wanted to try, wanted to regulate child labor in early 19th century in Britain, a lot of free market economists are up in arms. They said this is undermining the very foundation of a free market economy, namely the freedom of contract. You know, these uh, children want to work, these people want to employ them, what is your problem? Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's not like uh, these people kidnap these children and use them as uh, slave labor. They actually want to work. Yeah? Now, of course, uh, today, not even the most uh, the ardent uh, the advocates of free market say we need to bring back child labor. Yeah? Well, actually, there's one person who said that, Newt Gingrich. Yeah? <laughs> no, he said that, that uh, poor children should work as janitors in school. Yeah? But uh, that's uh, the closest uh, you uh, got... Uh, yeah, so that today, even the most that, that strong advocate of free market don't say that uh, we need to bring back child labor to truly you know, liberalize our economy because they have come to accept that you know, the rights of children to have a childhood and education should have priority over freedom of contract. Yeah? Once you accept that, this is not even an issue. But go to Pakistan, go to the Ecuador, there will be a lot of capitalists who scream against the regulation of child labor, exactly on the same ground as the ones used by the capitalists in England in the 19th century. So that shows that that, that even the definition of a market is a political exercise. So how can you say that economics should not have any politics? Because the very boundary of economics is defined by politics. Okay, to conclude, the book is not just an explanation of economic theories and facts, it's also about the role of economics in public life. 
And in this regard, I have but three observations to make. First of all, never trust an economist. <laughs> and that includes me. I'm not uh, excluding me. You know, professional economists do not have a monopoly over the truth, even when it comes to economic matters, not to speak of everything. You know, I already told you that there are literally you know, kind of uh, that a dozen economic schools, all with different views. You know? They can agree between themselves. You know? And it is entirely possible for people who are not professional economists to have sound judgments on economic issues. And sometimes uh, their judgments uh, may be even better than those of professional economists because they may be more grounded in reality and less narrowly focused. I would go one step further and argue that the willingness on the part of ordinary citizens to challenge professional economists and other experts is a foundation of democracy. You know, if uh, everything we have to do is uh, just to listen to the experts, why do you need democracy? You don't. So if you want to make uh, democracy meaningful, you should be willing to challenge these experts, challenge professional economists especially. The second point, well, I'm not even pretending to read uh, Latin because I don't know Latin, but uh, these are words that are written apparently on these walls of City Hall of uh, Gouda. I don't know how they managed to uh, come up with something that clever uh, while uh, they were making all those cheese. <laughs> Listen even to the other side. This is the attitude you should have. Yeah? I'm not saying that you should not have your own opinion. You should, yeah? But uh, recognizing the complexity of the world, recognizing the, the, the necessarily partial nature of all economic theories, you should be humble about the validity of your favorite theory and should keep an open mind about it. And finally, the, throughout the book, uh, even while I constantly make reform proposals, I emphasize how difficult it is to change the economic reality. Sometimes this is that, uh, because those who benefit from the status quo want to defend it. Yeah? Through lobbying, bribing, media propaganda, even violence. But in a capitalist society, the status quo often gets defended even without some people actively being evil. Yeah? Because the, the market is based on the one dollar, one vote rule, which means that the ability of those with less money to refuse undesirable options given to them is highly constrained. Yes, uh, so those uh, poor workers in Bangladesh ideally want to have a better job, but uh, that alternative is not offered. Moreover, people can be susceptible to beliefs that go against their own interests. You know, many of you might have seen those uh, American pensioners demonstrating against what they call the Obamacare with placards like government hands off the Medic uh, my Medicare program. Hang on, that, uh, I thought the Medicare was a government program. Yeah, yeah so when that, that, that people believe in that kind of thing, it's very easy for American medical insurance companies to defend their interests, yeah? because that, uh, they think actually government program is a private program. Yeah? 
Well, the Marxists uh, used to call this a uh, false consciousness. Yeah? In modern times, we call it the matrix. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Now, acknowledging the difficulties involved in changing the economic status quo should not make us uh, give up the fight to create a better economy. Yes, changes are difficult, but in the long run, when enough people fight for them, many impossible things happen. You know, 200 years ago, if you advocated abolishing slavery in the United States, people would have but, uh, called you at best uh, unrealistic. You know? 100 years ago, that, that they put women in prison in this country for asking for vote. Yeah, actually, a lot of women argue that, oh, you know, why do we need vote? Uh, we have our husbands and brothers uh, to represent our views. You know? You know, only 50 years ago, all the founding fathers of uh, today's uh, developing nations were hunted down as terrorists by the British and the French. But these things have all happened because people fought for them. So this is why I quote uh, in the book uh, Antonio Gramsci, the Italian Marxist, uh, who once said that we need to have pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. But uh, I can do a lot worse than finishing with this uh, that, uh, quote from Nelson Mandela, who used to say, it always seems impossible until it is done. Thank you. Okay, in in the best um, LSE tradition, we're going to have some time for question and answers. And and then after we wrap up the Q&A session, there are copies of Economics, the User's Guide on sale in front, and Ha Jun is going to stay here and sign your copies. (laughs) A limited number, because we also have to get him (laughs) off on a train back to Cambridge, and we want to feed him something before we send him away. Um, so I thought what we'd do is take two or three questions at a time, and please be brief uh, yeah, with your... Put up uh, the table yeah. of contents. Sure. Yeah. Please go ahead. So let me, let me begin. Hi, I'm Ramin, a member of public. Don't you find it surprising that Thomas Piketty's book is causing a lot of debate in the economics profession, given mm-hmm. that book uh, is, is mainly a work of economic history and does not follow you know, uh, the mainstream methodology? Mm-hmm. Isn't it surprising? Good question. Right, right. Yes. Yeah. Just for the microphone, do say who you are. Um, Alpa Shah from Anthropology. Um, I just wanted to ask you a question about where you left off with both Gramsci and Mandela, and what's your position on armed struggle for change? On armed struggle. Armed struggle, struggle yeah. for change. You write books like that, you're going to get wide-ranging questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Alexander Zhu. I'm a student here at Development Studies. Dr. Hadjinchanka, I would like to thank you for your interesting lecture. I wanted to ask a quick question. Do you think uh, that the rise of new emerging economies would add to the, to the struggle to change economic theory or 
would would the newly developing uh, countries uh, support the status quo? Uh, Maybe you right, can comment right. on the uh, economics theory in South Korea. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Right. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. On Piketty, I haven't read a book myself. I mean, it's a uh, daunting prospect at uh, 850 pages. Uh, <laughs> No, I mean, the, the very scholarly the book, but, uh, you know, it's not something that uh, you can read uh, for bedtime. Unlike this one. Yes. No, no, uh, this uh, you can read for bedtime. Yeah? <laughs> no, seriously, which economics book uh, has uh, Mary Poppins? Yeah? yeah, there's Mary Poppins in there. Yeah? A full page of it. Yeah? Yeah, but uh, you know the the, the, the interest uh, the surrounding the book is uh, really the reflection of uh, the spirit of the time, or what the Germans call the Zeitgeist. Yeah, I mean it's uh, less about yeah the book itself, but uh, the issues that is raising, and there's a huge concern about yeah increasing inequality, and you know I mean that uh, even. The, the, the Hollywood the, the movies uh, reflect uh, the, these kind of things. I mean, the, the movie with uh, the Matt Damon, Elysium, yeah? I mean, that's uh, what we are going to get uh, if uh, the, the trends uh, that Pickett is worried about uh, continues. Yeah? Some people live in outer space, uh, that, that, uh, living forever uh, with uh, the super advanced medical technology. Everyone else is uh, rotting on Earth. Yeah? So, yes, I mean, it's uh, that, uh, extremely important. Arm struggle. Well, I think uh, sometimes the regime is so unjust uh, that uh, that kind of measures uh, can be justified. You know, I mean, I don't see how you could uh, have brought about changes in South Africa that, uh, without uh, some kind of arm struggle. But you know, I mean, it's a difficult judgment you know, because that, uh, rarely regimes uh, are as yeah straightforwardly evil as the apartheid regime in South Africa. So that it's a difficult issue. Yes, I mean, the countries that uh, develop later, are they going to be nicer? You know, unfortunately, the evidence so far is very limited. Because, you know, Japan had one of the most restrictive regimes when it comes to foreign direct investment. But after having developed, uh, in the WTO, they routinely make this uh, submission saying, Rest- regulating foreign direct investment is uh, bad for economic development. Hello, I mean, uh, how did you develop? <laughs> you know, South Koreans are complained, oh, you know, the Chinese, the Vietnamese, they pirate copy out the, the CDs and DVDs, and come on, I mean, I grew up uh, watching pirate copy the Hollywood the, the, the videos, you know, listening to pirate copy the, the LP, rock and roll LPs, you know, and probably some of those people making that complaint in Korea learned their copyright law with a pirate copy textbook. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the, the ideally, we, I mean, yeah, but I mean, there's <coughs> some evidence that yeah, more recently developed countries are slightly more understanding about what developing countries have to do. So we have some hope, but that, uh, you know, you would have expected them to be a lot more open about this because, you know, I mean, uh, at least in America and Britain, uh, people can claim that, oh, you know, those are things that our great-great-grandfathers did uh, we uh, don't remember. But, you know, in Korea, in Japan, I mean, there are millions of people alive who are doing those things, uh, who remember those things, and they still wouldn't do it, you know? 
Thank you. I can take another round of questions. Yes, the gentleman here. Hi, um, I'm a member of public also. I'm not an economist, but I have a kind of a intelligent man's uh, interest in economics. Um, I, I thought you described economics uh, as a kind of a set of skills and a kind of a, um, approach in which choices and political positions um, are paramount, mm-hmm. but you did not touch at all in what way economics is, is, a, is a science. And, uh, you know, um, so I think that's where, therefore, we, we, we can't trust you as to whether you could predict what's coming, mm-hmm. um, derived from that scientific approach, if yep. there is one within economics. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. So do you want to expand on that? Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Is there anything like uh, science within economics and, and, yeah. and, uh, and would that help us predict, predict things? Thank you. Yes. Um, if economics uh, <coughs> uh, does its analysis by measurement, um, is there a way to measure those things which are currently not measured, like uh, the environment, um, mothers uh, looking after children, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, how how do we yeah, how yeah. do we ascribe value mm-hmm. to that which is not currently measured? Yeah. This here in the center, it's harder to pass the microphone. Yes. <coughs> yeah. Pass. Sorry. Oh, here. me? Up. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come back to you. Thank you, Professor Chan. I'm also a development studies student here at LSE. And I'm curious to know your view about the informal economy and how it links to the formal economy and how globalization, uh, since globalization, the informal economy has been increasing, especially due to outsourcing and global value chains. Sure. Thank you. Go ahead. Right, uh, is economic science uh, now? I mean, there's uh, this widespread view that uh, science should be able to predict. I don't necessarily agree with it, but uh, the accepting that view, you know, that I actually in the book I have this uh, quote from John Kenneth Galbraith, who probably was uh, the wittiest uh, that the uh, economist ever lived, who said that. Uh, economic prediction exists uh, to make uh, the astrology respectable. So, <laughs> no, record of uh, economic predictions are pretty bad. Uh, yes, I mean, you can predict certain things, but, I mean, this uh, that, uh, requires quite restrictive assumptions and, you know, the very fixed uh, situations. So it's uh, very bad about, you know, predicting things that are inherently unpredictable like a financial bubble or technological progress. Yeah, yeah if it's about uh, consumer behavior, it's uh, probably reasonably yeah, that, that, uh, competent and so on. So it uh, depends on which areas you talk about. But you know, my view, uh, as I explained in the book, is that uh, economics can never be a science. Yeah? I mean, that because A, because that, uh, all of these categories are political and uh, ethical assumptions behind them, and secondly, unlike uh, the, the objects are studied by natural sciences, uh, human beings have free wills. Yeah? You know, almost by definition, 
the economy develops only because some people behave in an irrational way. You know, I mean, the entrepreneurs, by definition, behave in an irrational way. If they were rational, they wouldn't have done those things because uh, that, uh, if uh, it was uh, going to succeed and everyone knew it, everyone would have done it and they wouldn't have succeeded. Yeah? <laughs> no, I mean, this is a serious point. I mean, this is what uh, people like Schumpeter and Hayek uh, make to criticize neoclassical economics. Yeah? So, you know, uh, exactly because of these kind of things, uh, you cannot predict uh, economic behavior in the way you can predict uh, that, that you know, movement of particles and uh, chemical molecules and so on. Now, can we measure the, the, these different things? Yes, I mean, we can. I mean, the, you know, some people have uh, tried to reconstruct uh, national accounts that uh, taking into account uh, environmental damage, you know, other people have uh, tried to estimate the value of uh, household work, uh, including childcare, care for the elderly, you know, cooking, cleaning, which are mostly done by women. And uh, many estimates agree that this, I mean, if you monetize them, but they'll add 30% to national output. You know? But we refuse to count them. Yeah? Why? I mean, it's a political decision, but, you know. Uh, so, yes, I mean, in theory, uh, some of these uh, things can be measured, but then you know, the, the, the very reason why they are included or not included is uh, partly political, so that politics has to change. Yeah? As for the informal economy, yes, I mean, uh, you know, it's a euphemism for uh, survival the activities for desperately poor people in the most cases. Uh, so... You know, this has uh, the, the spread, uh, especially in Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa, where the, the economic uh, growth and development have been disrupted, uh, partly because of uh, all these uh, neoliberal policies involving privatization, trade liberalization, opening of capital market, and so on. And yes, I mean, that these are sectors uh, that where, you know, people work, yeah, ostensibly, but uh, they add yeah, very little to productivity. You know, I mean, you go to I don't know Mexico, you stop at a junction. Yeah, there'll be these uh, little children rushing to your car, offering unsolicited window cleaning service. Some of them might juggle balls in front of you. Some of them might try to sell chewing gums. Yeah, in theory they are working, but uh, what do they add to national that that product? So yes, I mean that these are huge problems in developing countries, and uh, we need to yeah find ways to basically that, that, that get people out of those. I mean, unfortunately, that, that thanks to the Peruvian neoliberal lawyer, that Hernando de Soto, that, that the informal sector has been glorified into something that is uh, going to be the future of the yeah, uh, poor economies. But believe me, there is no country that has built yeah, a prosperous economy on the basis of informal sector activities, period. Yeah? Yes. Gentleman here, who I preempted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I call myself, uh, my name is Nicholas Falk, and I call myself a, an urban economist. And I look briefly into your book to find something about land or property, uh, which many think is the cause of many of our current problems as a result of the collapse of the banks in the, starting in the States. Well, why is it that economists have stopped uh, thinking about land as a factor of production? And um, is, is it just it, it requires another book, or is it not a, a legitimate <laughs> thing right, to study? Right. Do we have someone down here? 
Okay, I've got lots of hands up up here. <sighs> Just get the microphone. Sorry. Hi. Hi. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, my name is Sue Kim. Um, this is a random question. You said economics explains everything. Um, what, what do you think about the South Korean economy at the moment? Do you think there should be war with North Korea? Should be, you mean? Should there be war? Hmm. Okay. And just right here. One more. Uh, Roy Head, I'm an outsider. Um, how can economics help us distinguish between what's useful and lo- what's not? I mean, a lot of economic activity is really, it's fun. You know, I had a builder came to my house, built me a bathroom, I paid him money, he did a great job, we were both happy. And yet so much of the modern world, and I'm thinking particularly the banking sector, involves the creation of something which generates a lot of money, but we don't see it as, as adding value to our world. Mm-hmm. And yet still it gets calculated in all the economic calculations. So how can economics help distinguish between those two things mm-hmm. okay. yeah uh, yeah actually that both uh, the first and the third questions uh, could benefit from people studying classical economics uh, more uh, deeply I mean I'm not really a scholar of uh, classical economics but uh, you know I mean the economic theories of uh, the Smith and especially Ricardo I mean the land was crucial because that that, that to Ricardo, that, that this uh, rent generated by agricultural, uh, sorry, that uh, agricultural rent uh, generated by the use of uh, inferior quality land was eating into capitalist profit and holding back capital accumulation and economic development. So for him, but uh, this is a major issue. Now that, uh, of course, uh, land that uh, has uh, become far less uh, important uh, in economics over time because uh, you know the, uh, agriculture's uh, importance has declined, and you know the increasingly its role as a factor of production uh, declined. Today, land has become important, but not for the same reason. I mean, uh, today is not really factors of production; it's about you know, real estate, you know, people's uh, living space and so on. And in this, I think uh, Fred Hirsch's uh, 1976 book, uh, Social Limits to Growth, and this notion of positional goods that uh, is uh, really useful in understanding what's going on. You know, because that, that uh, positional goods uh, basically means that the value of the good is that, that uh, not really about what it gives you, but uh, the fact that other people do not have it. You know? So basically, even if you become rich and can now afford yeah, uh, this uh, nice house in a nice location, someone else has become even more uh, rich and uh, you still cannot buy it. Yeah? So, I mean, its uh, role has changed, but yes, I mean, uh, we could uh, 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 develop uh, some of these uh, classical theories and uh, uh, kind of uh, think about this uh, with this added dimension of uh, positional goods uh, from Fred Hirsch. The third question as well, I mean, the, the classical economists fought big battles on this notion of productive and unproductive labor. Hmm? So that, that they argued, you know, once again, that Ricardo was a big advocate of this. Uh, he said, you know, all these uh, servants who work for landlords, they add nothing to social productivity. They, they are unproductive labor. And then later, neoclassical economists said that uh, who are you to judge whether something is productive and unproductive and so on. So, I mean, uh, there's a big debate uh, to be had there. But yes, I mean, uh, you know, 
basically the way we count the, <coughs> the national output is uh, very much uh, kind of non non judgmental, if you like. Yeah? So, the, for example, if uh, that that uh, a country's uh, national income could rise without any rise in the, the human welfare, for example. Yeah, there could be a crime wave, and a lot of people might be buying security alarms and higher security guards and so on. So they might be yeah, as happy or as uh, secure as uh, they were, but they, were, they, are, they are spending a lot more money, and therefore national income goes up. Yeah? So there's a that, that fundamental problem with it. Yeah? South Korea, well, we, yeah, of course, uh, I don't think uh, they should have a war with North Korea. <laughs> Uh, South Korean economy has been actually the, the, the has not been doing very well in the last uh, 15 years or so, in my view, that, uh, because of all these uh, neoliberal reforms that were introduced after the 1997 financial crisis. Yeah? And we have uh, created a very uh, depressing society. We have the highest uh, suicide rate in the world. Didn't used uh, always used to be like that. I mean, until 1995, our suicide rate was at the uh, uh, below OECD average. Yeah? But, but don't, don't you think because mm-hmm. of North Korea, you know, there's a lot of military problems, money being spent for Azerbaijan? Don't you think that would also create a lot of suicide rates, a lot of anger to the army, the women's rights are very low? Oh no, 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 no. The, the, but uh, you know, those things have been there all the time, and uh, you know, this increase in suicide rate is uh, very recent. Yeah, in the last uh, 15 years, it uh, uh, went up from below average to three times uh, the in uh, OECD average. Yeah? Why, why do you think well, because uh, the, we have created this uh, society with uh, the low job security, that uh, virtually no pension for old people, and basically lack of welfare state. Let's uh, leave it at there. Yeah? Yeah. Let me take some other questions. Yes, just in the, in the center. Hi, um, I'm one of those irrational people called entrepreneurs, and um, and I think about economics in one way as um, the allocation of the optimal allocation of resources. That's one definition, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, given that it's all about moving pieces on a board, how much of growth is real? Uh, the concept of growth assumes you know, creation of new, new things. But really, people like me, all, are, all we're doing is essentially trying to create new ways of optimizing the allocation of resources. So how much of growth is real? How much of it is really borrowing um, from future generations? And how much of it is really robbery from those who are usually not, uh, you know, who are not well-supported or don't have the means to, you know, to, to protect... Um, you know the yeah. uh, resources that are um, that are then open to you know the vultures to come and mm-hmm. uh, to come and steal in one way or another. Thank you. And just here. My name's Jane Wernick. I'm a structural engineer. Um, do you think economics can help us deal with this terrible problem that we have in London at the moment, that um, the, the prices of places for people to live yeah. um, are, out, are becoming increasingly out of the, mm-hmm. the reach of ordinary people? Yeah. Very good. I can take one more last question here. Thank 
you. Hi, my name is Suzanne, and I'm also a student in development studies. Um, and I'm also very interested in Thomas Piketty's book. And I'm wondering about your view on inequality and in your reading of economic history, what has been the role of inequality in economic development? And also, what is the role of inequality in developmental societies today? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Right. Um, yes, I mean, the optimal allocation of resources is actually different from economic growth. Yeah, Growth means expansion in the resources, and optimal allocation is given the resources, how do you, you know, make uh, use them efficiently? Yeah? Now, of course, uh, the growth uh, the doesn't always uh, give you the answer, but uh, you know, up to a point, I mean, the poor, poor countries, growth uh, is uh, usually good, you know, I mean, for, because uh, for those countries, economic growth means people not dying young, I mean, the people eating another bowl of rice, yeah? people the being able to send their kids to school the, 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 rather than make them work in dangerous jobs. Yeah? So at the lower level of economic development, growth is the, 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 the very strongly correlated with the, the human welfare. Now, above a certain level, all sorts of uh, complications uh, set in. I mean, the issue of uh, positional goods and the, the what have you, we cannot. Uh, that, that we don't have uh, time to discuss that. Uh, once again, please uh, refer to the book. Yeah, uh, house uh, prices. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, economists can uh, tell you exactly that, uh, how to deal with it. That uh, of course uh, there are many different types of economics, but then yes, I mean that, that, that given economic theory, you can have uh, solutions. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that you could have uh, taxes or restrictions on the, the I don't know, that the foreigners are that, yeah, like myself, are buying things, you know. Uh, I mean, that, that you, you could have uh, yeah, rent control, you could have uh, all sorts of things, yeah. Or you could uh, nationalize all the land, like in Singapore, yeah. Yeah, Singapore didn't start with that. I mean, in the beginning, uh, the less than half of land was owned by the government. Yeah? Over time, it has uh, kept buying up. Yeah? Inequality, well, I mean, it's a, a complicated story. I have a whole chapter, uh, well, half of a chapter dedicated to it. But my reading of uh, historical evidence is that uh, it, uh, the, I mean, uh, if it's uh, too low, it can be bad. Uh, if it's uh, too high, it can be bad. Yeah, But then... A lot of it is uh, within human control. I mean, that's the important thing. You know, even today, for example, if you look at the OECD the, the statistical base, they give actually two different Gini coefficients that, that, that the indicators of uh, income inequality. One is before tax and redistribution, and one is after. Yeah? And if you look at the uh, Inequality figures before Germany is actually more unequal than the United States. Yeah. You know that the, they say oh, the countries have to become unequal because it's uh, all because of technology and international trade and China. But then, how do you explain that Switzerland over the last tw twenty years has become more unequal, uh, more equal rather than more unequal? Yeah? All countries are subject to same forces of these things. Yeah, Switzerland is even more open than the United States, which is one of the most closed uh, economies in the world. Yeah, 
So it's all because of uh, different policies about uh, taxation and you know, welfare state and so on that uh, we have dif- different uh, income uh, distribution outcomes. It's not the result of uh, nature, you know. So that uh, never believe anyone if they say, oh, it's uh, technology, it's uh, international forces and you know, things beyond our control. No, they are not. Yeah? We have evidence. Yeah? Thank you, Hajun. I think we have to wrap up this part now so that you have a chance, if you'd like, to be able to pick up a copy of the book. And if you're kind of crafty and try to get a signature, you might ask another question <laughs> while he's signing your book. But let us, let us show our appreciation both for the book and the, and the text. <laughs>